So yesterday we spent, um, we meaning um, the Lowcountry Flyers High School Ultimate Team, spent the day in Chapin, South Carolina playing uh, for a tournament, playing our Ultimate Frisbee Tournament, which is kind of like soccer with a flat ball. And um, we've been doing this for several years, and it's kind of a, it's one of the outreaches of our church. And so it's high schoolers, and there's a few middle schoolers that we include in that. So we went with high expectations, and we played our first game, and we won our first game, and it was not, it wasn't really close. So our expectations continued to, to climb. And then we played the second game, and we didn't score. We got blown away. But we were like, okay, we can bounce back. And then we played our third game, and we didn't score. And then it was like, thank goodness it's lunchtime. <laughs> and so we ate lunch, and we were feeling, well, let's just say expectations had come back to earth. <laughs> and we were feeling defeated because we had been defeated. Not all, but we were feeling pretty low. Life can be like that. It can be relentlessly like that. And you can kind of find yourself going, this isn't going where I was hoping it would go, and I don't see any change in sight. And it can be incredibly disheartening. And you can find yourself so down, far down in a hole that you don't think there's any way out unless somebody somehow crawls down in the hole and pulls you out. Okay, well, today... I feel like in this passage in Revelation, we get the answer to the question, what to do when we feel defeated? Because we're going to get a picture of what's happening to people who are still here, whether the church has been raptured and the rest are left behind, or whether the church hasn't been raptured yet, but we're in these end times, and we're facing um, unprecedented opposition from the enemy, spiritually speaking, physically speaking, and everything in between. And the Bible speaks very forthrightly that there is an end to our history before Jesus comes back and starts a new history, a future history with no end. But, but while we talk about you know history repeats itself and there's cycles in history, and that's true on a on a micro scale, but on a macro scale, history is linear. It started in a garden, and it has continued to move forward for thousands of years until where we are today. And this book, the Revelation, which is an unveiling of the future history that's yet to come, is saying there's going to be an end to history as we know it. History in a world where there is sin, there is suffering, there is evil. There's an end coming to all of this. This is why we call our series The Best is Yet to Come, because it's the end of this, but it's not the end of all. Okay? And so some of that is described, well, a lot of that is described in the book of Revelation. So we started with, uh, in chapter 1, we started with a picture of the risen Lord Jesus, and uh, we, we saw him in all his glory, and then he immediately turned and started speaking to his people, the church. Okay, and that's Jesus sees the church as the people of God. The, he calls us the body of Christ. That means that now that he is beside the Father in heaven. We represent him here, hands and feet. Okay, he's the head, we're the hands and feet, and the rest of the body. He calls us the bride of Christ, which means there's an intimate fellowship that we share with Jesus that has starts the day we trust and follow Jesus Christ and we submit to him. 
and, and, and so he's talking to his beloved bride and the body, and he, and he challenges them, and he um, encourages them. And then in chapters 4 and 5, we see that the scene moves from earth up to heaven, and in heaven we find the throne room of God, and this is um, you know, the Bible talks about multiple heavens. Okay, you've got the first heaven, that's the sky. The second heaven, that's space, and probably multiple dimensions that we can't see. And then the third heaven is outside of creation. That's where God, his, his angelic host, or, or, I don't know about his angelic host, that's where God is. It's God holds the universe, right? It's like, yeah, this cute little universe that's 93 billion light years across. Isn't it cute? See that? And, and you know, I could squash it, but maybe I'll wait. And and so we have the heavens, and in that throne room, wherever that is, <laughs> which heaven, I'm not sure, um, we, we're chapters 4 and 5. And then chapter 6, it swings to where things start to get ugly. And from chapter 6 through 19, on and off, we see God releasing wrath, which we're really uncomfortable talking about. Because we don't like a God who judges. We don't like a holy, wrathful, vengeful God. We like a God of mercy. And I like mercy. I'm with you, right? But um, there are times in life when I want justice also. And God is holy and perfect in how he executes justice. And he gives justice to, to most who deserve it. And to some, he gives mercy instead. But we all really have to own this and say, I, I deserve justice. So he is going to start unleashing just his just wrath he starts to do this is again this is talking about the future the wrath that is to come and he is um, he's going to use evil to judge evil which is why it looks so evil and it is so and he first there's a set there's three sets of judgments the first set's called the seals the second set's called the trumpets and the third set's called the bowls and um, and I don't know how important those symbols are and what they what we talk about, but the, it, here's what I think is important, is that God is holy and he will judge sin, has judged sin, and that happened to the cross, and that has already happened, by the way, in history, at the end of Jesus' life on earth, okay? He judged sin and death and shame and guilt, and he put an end to it that will eventually happen. But um, he, he does this extended session and series of judgments because he's trying to do it in such a way that people who have still rejected him and have continued to rebel against him have a little bit more chance to say, yeah, I need to repent and believe. I want to repent and believe. So there's God's mercy, but it's, there's a time limit. God is patient. We don't deserve him to wait at all, but there is a limit to that. At some point, Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. Okay? We are at this point in Revelation 12, we have been through the seals and we have been through six of the seven trumpets. Actually, the seventh trumpet was blown last week, so to speak, in chapter 11. And these are the words that came from that. And I'm going to reread verse 15 in chapter 11. And it says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. And I review that, I go back to that, that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever, because that's the pinnacle of the book of Revelation. That's what gives you and me hope that we're not swept up into a nightmare that never ends. It means that's possible. It means that I can know God and be known by God and be protected from the satanic influence and the evil wrath and judgment that comes. 
And so this was our bottom line last week. We said that God protects his people from all satanic opposition, okay? And we clarified, and we said, that doesn't mean he doesn't let stuff happen to us. I'm not saying that. But he protects us ultimately and sometimes in the moment from satanic opposition. And his people proclaim the good news about the fact that the kingdom of God is near until the kingdom comes, okay? So God protects his people, and we proclaim his gospel. And the gospel is the kingdom of God is near until it's here. And it will be here in full one day when Jesus returns. Okay? The other time frame we talk about is a seven-year period that many people call the tribulation or the great tribulation that is, some people think we're in it now. I kind of chuckle. I, don't, I, I read this and I go, it doesn't, it doesn't look that bad, I don't think. Um, and it, it could be a literal seven years. It could be figurative. It doesn't matter to me. There's a period of time and things are going to happen. And he's kind of laid them out here as far as what happens in the first three and a half years, what happens in the second three and a half years, what happens at the beginning, middle, and end. And while that's debatable, and some of it is, I'm very okay with it being debatable, some of it gives us, it gives us some very clear, firm things to rest on that we can take away and go, okay, I don't get about 90% of that, but I think I can get the main thing here. Okay? And so I, I hope to, that we, by tackling this question, what do I do when I feel like um, I'm defeated? I think you're going to find that, that the Christians in the future uh, are going to have that to deal with. And we have it today, and I think we can take away some, some principles here from this. So um, because I have way more to say than I have time to say it, let me go ahead and jump in. Okay, John is writing, starting in verse 1 of chapter 12. One of the first great signs. There's going to be three signs in here, and they'll have four later. So for a total of seven signs. A great, this is verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun. Now that's a garment I, want to, I don't want to see because I don't want to be blinded. Right? Appeared in heaven. A woman clothed in, with the sun, with the moon under her feet. So clearly this is imagery, uh, at least I'm hoping. And a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And you're like, wow, this is already strange, and I'm with you. Okay, verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will, quote, rule all the nations with an iron scepter, quoting Psalm 2, referring to the Messiah. And her child was snatched up to God and his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Now let me pause there and let's catch us up. Okay. Now, let's remember that the book of Revelation is full of two things, words that have already been written, and a lot of that is imagery and symbolic. And the other thing it's full of is symbols that help us understand what it's trying to say. So, for example, I've used this several times. If you look at a, you see these in the movies or on TV, or if you just see a bottle and it's got a label on it that looks like a skull and crossbones, your immediate thought is that bottle has poison in it. Because that's a symbol for death, and it's usually in context on a, jar, on a bottle or a jar. Don't take that. So what you're looking at is a jar with something in it that's poisonous. You're not looking at 
a literal skull and crossbones. You're looking at a symbol of death. That's the book of Revelation. I mean, there's just symbol after symbol after symbol. So while we read it and when it goes weird, we have to remember that John is just writing down what he's seeing in the moment. Okay? God has given him this. He's kind of downloaded it in a very visual way, and he's doing the best he can to describe it to people in, in, in a day 2,000 years ago. And God is communicating it to John in a way that not only would make sense to them then, but it would make sense to people in the future, even now. Which means he has to say it in a way that kind of rises above the culture. And that's one reason why symbols work. And the reason that we can figure that out is we have a lot of Scripture preceding this that gives us those images in other contexts so that we can then interpret and understand what is he trying to say. So let me see if I can unpack some of this. I don't understand it all. I'm not going to pretend. I'm going to tell you what I think I understand and where I think it goes and why I think it matters. And some of it I'm just going to blow by and you're going to go, oh, no, I want to know more about that. There are plenty of books you can read and get into the nitty-gritty and find the 17 different interpretations of that nuance. I'm not going there, okay? We don't have time for that. Because I want you to leave with something practical without um, offending the text. I don't want to dishonor what is being written here and why it's being written. But remember, Scripture was not written to scholars. It was written to ordinary people like you and me. And so we should be able to take away, just by reading it and knowing some basics, we should be able to understand what it says. Okay? That doesn't mean don't read those books. I promise you I read a lot of them this week. Okay. So let's, let's, uh, let me see if I can describe to you what's happening here. So there's three signs. There's the woman, there's this dragon, and there's this male child. The male child is pretty straightforward, right? That's, that's the Messiah, which makes you want to think the woman's Mary. It's not Mary. Um, and maybe you want to think it's the church. The church didn't birth Jesus. Jesus birthed the church. Okay, um, it's not Mary um, because it, it's because of the symbols that follow will will make you convinced. I think that it's actually Israel. So if you go to and and you're going to have to jot these references down. We don't have time to go to them. Genesis. 37, 9 and 10. Genesis 37, 9 and 10. The life of Joseph is there. And um, I think last weekend we watched a play here locally in his technicolor robe, right? Joseph, the coat of many colors. You've heard the stories maybe when you were younger. Um, In that story of stories, and Jesus treats them as history. So when I say story, I mean true history. Story is history. Joseph has a few dreams, not uncommon in the Old Testament, although much less common than we think. And in that dream, one of the dreams he has, he dreams about a sun and a moon and, and stars. And the stars bow down to Joseph in the dream. Okay? And so you can, if you go there, you can see very, I think, pretty easily that the sun represents his father Jacob, The moon represents his mother, Rachel, and the 12 stars represent the 12 sons of Jacob. Now, Jacob was renamed by God, and his name became Israel. Okay? So, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed in the sun, that would be of Jacob, with the moon under her feet, Rachel, a crown of 12 stars on her head, the sons, or the which became the tribes of Israel, The reason that matters is that the woman represents Israel, 
and Israel's role in the end times. Now remember, Israel is God's chosen people, but that doesn't mean that all the people in Israel are chosen by God individually. Faith still comes the same way it comes for you and me. To be a son of Abraham, true son in the spirit of, of God's sense, you still, it is by grace through faith. Okay, that's still the case. That said, there's different takes on this. What happens to Israel in the end when, when God brings this all together? I don't know exactly how that plays out other than to say God is going to take care of his people, Israel. Of course, and then Paul will teach us in the New Testament that he adopts us into that family. That as a Gentile believer, I'm grafted in to the family of God that is Israel. I am, I'm adopted into God's family. And so, uh, but here it seems to be very narrow and specific to say right here and now, the woman seems to represent believing Jews. Okay? All right? Or Jews that will believe but haven't yet. So they are being pursued. So that's what leads to the next picture. The next is this great dragon. And in Scripture, the dragon always refers to Satan. Okay? And later in this passage, we haven't read it yet, you're going to see a lot of different descriptions of Satan that will make that connection very obvious, and I won't go there yet. All right? He's called a lot of other things. So here's the scene, right? We have a woman about to give birth to a male child. Oh, and by the way, the male child is the hope of all creation and history. And waiting for this birth to happen is this massive, evil, incredibly intelligent dragon that is waiting for lunch. I went back and I looked at a, uh, the 10-minute scene in the Hobbit movie where um, Bilbo stumbles into the treasure lair of Smaug, the dragon. It's an incredibly impressive uh, cinematic feat. I mean, I, it is amazingly, incredibly, wow, this feels so real. And, and this dragon is more terrifying than that, okay? I can't think of a more compromising, vulnerable position for a woman to be in than this. So the drama is the, the hope of the world is about to be born and the enemy of that hope awaits in obvious, incredible power and strength and it looks like the situation is hopeless. Does it not, does it not look hopeless? Now you think of all the great stories of humanity. You think of the great stories in books and movies and, and all the rest. Aren't the greatest stories stories where it is clear there's no hope, and yet there's hope? Just a sliver of hope. And then my favorite is still the hobbit, uh, Frodo, in, in Lord of the Rings, when he is trying to get rid of the ring and throw it in the fires of Mount Doom so that it will be destroyed and the evil will be wiped out. But he's just this little halfling. He's such a small guy. He looks like a child, and he's going into the heart of the enemy's territory. With just with his just his companion Samwise, and he overcomes one thing after another. It's almost like there's this providential hand guiding him through, which I imagine Tolkien in, intended from the beginning. And that's what makes the story epic is because there's just no hope everywhere you turn throughout the whole uh, saga. There's no hope. There's no hope. There's no hope. And yet hope's still alive because Frodo's still alive. And it moves on through the story until the end. And since it's a new story, I won't tell you the ending. But um, 
you, you, you need to watch or read. Okay, so that's the thing, though. He believed that what he was doing was good and right, and whether he lived or died, it was what he was supposed to do. So it really came back to he believed. Now, it matters what we believe in, and that's the difference between the stories in our culture and the story of, the, of this, is it matters what you believe, but the stories are all analogies and illustrations of the story. Okay? The Bible is one story from the beginning to the end. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And we walk in this hope that the best is yet to come, that God is restoring all things under Christ who is the head. Ephesians uh, 1 and Colossians 1. In both places, Paul makes it very clear. Jesus is king, and there's nobody that can change that. But let's face it, when we look at the news and we look at our lives, we go, it looks pretty bleak sometimes. It looks like this is really, we're looking at the dragon. We're not looking at the, you know, we feel like the woman here sometimes. We feel like we are defeated and there's no hope. And what I want you to leave with here today is there absolutely is hope. But that hope is in Jesus Christ, okay? He is the hope of the world. And he is crazy though it may be. He's using imperfect people that he calls his bride and his body, the church, to help him spread the news that there is hope, okay? Imperfect people working with a, a, a perfect God in and through us is, is bringing hope to the world. And some people are ready for that hope and are looking for that hope, and they don't know where to find it until you deliver it to them, okay? So let's keep going. All right, so we have, um, let, let me, okay, so she was pregnant. She cried out in pain. She was about to give birth. The dragon shows up. Seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns. I could get into all that. This is how I'm going to summarize it. First of all, one-headed dragons are bad enough. Okay, seven, really? And we've got more horns than heads, so we've got some with two, we've got some with one, and then we've got crowns. So this is probably pointing to leaders in our world who are so evil, you might even call them possessed, they're just so wicked and evil because they're doing the bidding of Satan, okay? So we're, we already have some of that. We've had some of that in history, and there's more to come. And at times, it, we've not had to live in a country where we've had a, a Hitler in charge, although some would argue that, or a Stalin in charge, although some would argue that, right? <laughs> but we think it's been bad. It has not been bad yet, Okay. Not like it could be. And, and what he's saying is the future is there's a, there's a really bad future here. Okay? Um, and then he talks about the tail sweeping a third of the stars. I want to come back to that. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that she might, he might devour, it might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to the son, okay, um, Jesus. Uh, and then it says, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Now, here's the first part of that bottom line we talked about last week. God protects his people from satanic opposition. No hope, and he's delivered. The same word from, that's used for the rapture is used here for snatched up. Okay? God rescues his people. Okay? He is the rescuer. He is the first, uh, he is the capital C Coast Guard's hero. Okay? He, he's got the life ring and the lifeboat, and he is delivering those who are drowning from whatever is in front of them. Okay. The woman fled into the wilderness to place 
to a place prepared to her, uh, prepared for her um, by God, where she might be taken care of for twelve hundred sixty days. That's three and a half years. Okay, and then that's probably the first three and a half years of the seven year period. Now. Basically, what happens, the woman is still Israel and fleeing, and God is basically doing what we might call a second exodus. First exodus, Moses delivers the people of Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt. He takes them to the promised land. They don't believe he can take them to the promised land, so they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. But what does he do while they're in the wilderness? He provides and protects. Okay? Well, it feels like that's kind of what's happening here in the future. She will flee to the wilderness where God has prepared a place for her. He's going to provide for her and, and, and protect her, okay? Again, I think this is Israel. I think these are believing Jews. I'm not sure, okay? So it could include Christians. I don't think it does yet. Now, let's go into the next section. Let's see if we can't unpack a little more here. Verses 7 through 12. Let me read that. So then, and then is arguable, but I, I don't have a problem with this timing, if this is the way it is. Then war broke out in heaven. So we've moved from earth to heaven. Michael, one of the two named angels, and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ain't, Now, here are the descriptions of Satan. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Let's pause there. So I don't know when this battle happened. Some people think it happened at the beginning, like right before or right around the time of Adam and Eve. Some people think it happened at the cross. Some people think it's going to happen in the future. It kind of reads to me right here like it's future, but it if you read it as the past, it explains some things. And so I'm going to teach you that too because I've kind of, I'm kind of going, I like this one. And then when I read this one, I go, I like this one. I don't know. So here's the short version, um, I'm, I hope. Verse 4, its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky. So here's the, this is based on, write these references down. Uh, e- Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14. And in both of those places, it's written to a historical king. In Ezekiel 28, it's written to the Babylonian king. In Isaiah, it's written to the king of Tyre. But behind it, you'll also see, whoa, there's no way a king is described like that. No earthly king could measure up to that. And that's because it's describing Lucifer, Satan's name before he became Satan, okay? An angel of angels, like the top angel, Okay, like there's a worship choir, an angel who's leading that worship team, Lucifer, because he was the brightest and most beautiful as described in all this. Okay, also put down Jude 6, and we're going to look at 2 Peter 2 4 for a heartbeat so that I can just show you why I'm pulling you to these verses. 2 Peter 2 4 says, For if God did not spare his angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, Dot, dot, dot. I'm not giving you the rest because it's not relevant. For if God did not spare his angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell. So what is that about? Okay, because we, now we have angels sinning, and I'm really worried. This is the way I understand it, and I think Scripture points to this. I'm not going to the, fight you on this if, you're, if you disagree. S- Lucifer led a rebellion at some point in heaven against Almighty God because he wanted to be God. And so he somehow convinced a third of the angels to join him, and they failed. Some people think 7 through 9 describe that event. 
it makes sense. It fits with the sweeping a third of the stars out of the sky. I can see it. And it's very possible that that happened at the beginning. It's possible that it happened later, except that you have Lucifer becoming the tempter in in the scene in the garden, Genesis 3. Okay, so I'll come back to that in a second. I know this is a lot, and I know I'm jumping around. I apologize. To me, when I just read this, I'm being convinced it might not be that original. And since we don't have it spelled out for us, like I would like to have it spelled out for us, I'm holding it all really loosely because the point is we need to take away this. Who wins? God wins. Okay, and who is God fighting for? He's fighting for his creation, okay? And that includes angels. It includes all creatures in the universe, and it certainly cre- includes humanity. God protects his people, okay? Let's not miss that. Even though you feel defeated, you feel attacked, you feel like, I'm, I'm losing here. Yes, God's people die. Yes, God's people suffer. Yes, we go through dark times, okay? I'm not saying those don't happen, but ultimately God delivers his people Sometimes in this life they get to experience some of that, and sometimes it's just in the ultimate sense when we will face no more evil and no more suffering and no more pain. And I'm not smart enough to know when that happens, and I'm okay with that. I hope you can can be. All right, so, um, so, so we see, and the, the, so he's the great dragon, the ancient serpent, which refers to Genesis 3. Let me take you there. Just And I, I don't have time to, t- to write down Genesis chapter 3 to go back and look at, but especially verse 15. So in Genesis 3, so the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, there is no sin in the world. The last two chapters in the Bible, of end of Revelation, there's no sin in the world. Everything in between, there's sin in the world. And it starts in Genesis 3 when Eve takes the fruit is, and eats it and hands it to... We're going to read it. Okay. It's too important. It's too important, guys. It's, but at least there's no extra charge for this. Verse 1. I'm sorry I didn't give you guys this. This is Genesis 1 through 15 if you want to catch up. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the, the Lord God made. He said to the woman, this is a serpent talking to a woman, and, and she doesn't seem to be weirded out by this, so I think animals talked. That's some lunch conversation there. There you go. Animals, what? What did he say? Um, And I think they will in heaven too. He said to the woman, did God really say, I'm starting to preach, sorry, you must not eat from any tree in the garden. Okay, there it is. He's asking the question. He's questioning the words of God. Isn't that what he does? He causes us to doubt God's word. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. That's correct. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. That's true. And she adds, which isn't true, you must not touch it. I'm not sure why she did that. And then he says, or you will die. And that's accurate too. Now, sidebar, we don't know if she heard this directly from God or from Adam. Scripture doesn't tell us. My speculation is Adam got it from God and he told her. And he may have told her incorrectly in part. All right, here we go. I'm not trying to blame it on us, guys, I promise. All right, then verse 4. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. There's a lie. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And that's accurate. Now, verse 6. When the woman, here's the three ways we're tempted. 
When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and it had to be looking good, okay, because this is horrible what happens, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, God used, uh, I'm sorry, the enemy used all those things to tempt her. She took and some and ate it. She ate the fruit. It doesn't say apple. It says fruit. Just no extra charge for that either. She also gave some to her husband, who knew better, who was with her, and he ate it. And he chose to eat it. She didn't make him eat it. Okay? So she's deceived, but he is totally just disobeying. Okay? Because he heard it from God. That's another sermon series. All right. Um, she gave some to her husband, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Okay? Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden, like they can hide from God. All right, but the Lord called to the man, where are you? Like he doesn't know. He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. There's shame. And he said, I told you that you were naked. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Notice he didn't say, I commanded Eve. He said, I commanded you, Adam. I'm talking to you, boy. The man said, the woman you put me here with. (laughs) See how quickly (laughs) the woman made me do it. Yeah. Okay. The woman you put here. This is the woman when he saw her, he went, whoa, man. I mean, this was, this is Eve, right? The woman you put me here with, she gave me some fruit from the tree. And then he admits sheepishly, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent, right? (laughs) She's blaming. The serpent deceived me and I ate. And Paul agrees later. He will say, the reason, the reason, this is hard. This is hard to say, okay? Easy for me to say as a man, you might say. This is why Paul says elders and pastors should be men. Okay, and I know this is culturally. Um, he, he uses this reason. Paul does before sin had entered the world. She was deceived, not Adam. Adam was just flat out disobedient. And he's saying, "I need to protect my church." And so this is the order, and it's order in the family, and it's the order in the church. And don't hate me. I'm just the mailman. Okay, here we go. The man said to the woman, you put me here. Okay, the woman points down that. Here's, here's, here's the proto-evangelia. I've been wanting to say that word for a long time. Okay, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust. That's where the expression comes, eat my dust. I'm just kidding. Uh, all the days of your life. Now, here's verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the first time the gospel is shown in the Bible. Unless Job is written before Genesis, which is possible, this is the proto-evangelion, which means he is prophesying. Okay, God is basically saying there's going to be a battle between the seed of the woman and the serpent. Okay? And that's what we're seeing in Revelation 12. All right? And here's how the battle's going to go. The serpent, he's going to crush the heel of your 
seed, your, your future son, 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 grandson, son, great, great, great. But he's going to crush the snake's head, okay? That's why they call Jesus the snake crusher, okay? Because he will, in fact, if you remember the scene at the very beginning of the Passion of the Christ, early, early in the movie, he's in the Garden of Eden, he's praying, the, you know, sweating drops of blood, and there's a serpent that's slithering on the ground, and at some point he and it scared me to death when he did too. He was stomped on the head of that and crushed that snake's head because that's what he says is going to happen, okay? The best is yet to come because we win. He wins, and we win because he wins. It's important that you see that here in the very beginning because most theology is built on the most ancient texts, and this is why we have, this is the good news for the Old Testament. I mean, this is the, the gospel in the Old Testament. So let's not forget that. Okay, um, I'm never going to catch up. Let's keep going. Um, So, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come four things, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. Okay? And and power and authority are two versions of power. One is power like dynamite. Dynamus is the the Greek word. And the other one is exousia, which is authoritative power. God has both, and that's why he can rule, and that's why he should rule. For the accuser, one of the names of Satan, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters, now it feels like God's going to, he's broadening this description of who the woman is, possibly, to include believers Uh, other believers, Gentile believers, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. Let me just pause. Some of you feel defeated because the enemy has been pointing at you and saying and accusing you of things. And you've been doing them. And so you feel guilty. Now, let me talk to you. If you're a follower of Christ, okay, even though he may be right, in his accusation, you have something to say to that. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay? No condemnation. That means you can look, you don't want to look him in the eye, right? But if you just say right back to him, you're right when you accuse me and I am guilty of that sin or I'm guilty of that attitude or I'm guilty of whatever you say, but the blood of Christ has covered that and I am resting in that and I am not condemned. I am free in Christ. And so walk in that. Just slap that aside, that accusation. I promise you, after a while, he'll give up and move on to somebody who's not paying attention. Okay? That's why he's called the accuser. That's what he does. Don't buy it. Verse 11, they triumphed over him, that is the enemy. And how did they do it? Two key, key things here. They, that is the brothers and sisters, and I think this includes Israel as well as Gentile believers now, they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Okay, The blood of the Lamb is another way of saying the cross, which is another way of saying where sin and death, shame and guilt, hell itself was defeated. And we know it was defeated because even though Jesus died and went into the tomb, he didn't stay there. The stone was rolled away. The tomb is empty. The cross is empty. The grave clothes are folded nice and neat, maybe even laundered. And Jesus walked for the next 40 days and spoke to his followers eye to eye, ate food with them. In one case, there were 500 of them in the room at the same time. There's no hypnotic mess going on there. There's no um, trances. and, and it, You can't all have a hallucination, all 500 people having the same hallucination. This was the risen Lord Jesus Christ physically 
appearing before his followers to encourage them to start a movement that we are still here carrying out today, 2,000 years later. Okay, that's right. That's right. So, yes, and all throughout history, Christians and, and followers of Christ have, been, have found themselves in hopeless situations and feeling defeated. And here we are. Here we are. Best is yet to come. So they triumph. Now, here's the important part. This is where it gets personal, okay? So it's kind of easy to go, okay, Jesus, he, he accommodated in such a way that he satisfied the holy wrath of God by sh- being the sacrifice, okay? And, and Because he didn't sin, so he's the only one qualified to hang on the cross in my place and yours, and he absorbs the entire wrath of God for all humanity, for all history, past, present, and future, And because of that, I don't have to. I don't have to accept the wrath for my sin. It's already been accepted. He received it, and it killed him. And then God raised him from the dead to say, yep, that was good enough. That's my boy. He obeyed me to death. That is a good word, right? That is so encouraging. So, but here's the personal part. It's, it's God holding the gift out to you with your name on it. It's God having the, it's all wrapped up. It's got your name on the tag. Chosen. But you've got to appropriate the gift. It would be kind of like, and this isn't hard to believe, if I came up to you with some car keys and I had a little bow tied on there and I offered you the car keys, it'd be hard to believe that I was giving you a car, Right? Especially if you see what I drive, <laughs> right? You know, okay, let's just let's just say I come to you and it's a, and it says I don't know, BMW on it or whatever you like, and it's got a bow and I'm like I'm giving you this, and you're like no I don't believe it, and you wouldn't even reach for them, right? You'd be like I don't believe it because you're thinking this is too good to be true, right? People do that all the time with God. It's too good to be true. I don't believe it. And so you don't appropriate the gift that is yours. Folks, he's offering you more than that. But you have to receive it. John 1.12, and I'm going to read this one too. I think it's worth it. John 1.12. So this is the first chapter. It's the same author. John wrote the Revelation. John wrote John. This is um, not John the baptizer. This is one of the 12 disciples. And in verse 12, he says this. Yet to all... Uh, let me read verse 11. He came to that which was his own. That's just the people of God, the, the chosen people to start with. But his own did not receive him. That's Israel. Verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name. There's the belief. They re- believed. They received by believing. He gave the right to become children of God. It didn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile anymore. Okay? That was the good news to the Gentiles. We got to be in. Children born not of natural descent seed of Abraham, nor of human decision. Oh, I can be saved if I want because I get to decide that. I think God has something to say about that. All right. Or of a husband's will, but born of God. It is a work of God. And it is, it is, um, it is not automatic, even though it's available. You have to receive it. Believe and receive. Okay, so uh, let's see if we can land this plane. All right, they triumphed over him. Those are the two keys. You need to receive it to to truly um, accept and receive salvation, the triumph, the victory that we're talking about. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Now, this statement is, is huge because he's talking about people in the midst of this time of tribulation who love God and believe in him so much they're willing to, to live and die for him. 
Now, I would like to think that if I was in a situation where I had a gun at my face and they're like, do you believe in God and I'm going to pull the trigger if you say yes, that I would say yes. Or whatever situation you want to pay, I would like to think I would be willing to die for God and not deny him, okay? Because I think that the pattern of my life is I'm, if I'm willing to live for him, I should be willing to die for him and I actually think it's harder to live for him. So I'd like to think that. At the end of the day, I'm trusting that God's going to give me what I need to respond to whatever situation he puts me in. Okay? And so I'm not worried about that, and I'm not going to lose sleep over that anymore. All right? These folks were there also. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. That means that when they were put in a situation, and this happens, it still happens today. In fact, it happened more in the 20th century than in the previous 19 centuries combined, that people were given the opportunity to deny Christ and save their life, and they didn't. Okay? If you want to read the ancient versions of those, go find Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you can read all about them. But you can just go to uh, some of these websites that are out there today about talking about, go to the voice of the martyrs. Persecution.org. Go to that website, and you're going to read modern-day stories of people who will die for Christ, and I've already proven it. Okay? People are doing this today because it's ratcheting up and it's increasing. And that's the heart of gratitude that recognizes there's one way, and we have access to that one way. He's given it to us, but we have to receive it. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. He's looking up. And then, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. This is the fourth time he said this. This is why we have havoc in our world. That, and, and my feel and sense is that this is ahead of us. This isn't here yet. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. And this is not time chronos. This is time kairos. Okay, so he, it's not just saying his time is short as in the calendar. He's saying your time is short as in the the appointed moment of his judgment is at hand. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he, per, he pursued the woman. So, um, so he tries to finish her off. That, that's Israel and probably um, other followers that are with them now, who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of an eagle. Write down these two references. Exodus 19.4, where Moses refers to this expression, and uh, Isaiah 40, 30, and 31, I think that's right. Uh, that's the other place that I, I know that it is, and in those cases, referring to deliverance through the eagles. I don't think it's a coincidence that Tolkien wrote at the end of his book when we see Frodo and Sam being snatched up from Mount Doom on the wings of eagles. I just don't think it's, I'm just saying, I, I'm, I'm a, maybe I'm nostalgic here, but um, love my Tolkien. Okay, so... Um, Y'all are getting me off track here. Come on, help me out. Oh, the wings of eagles. Okay, there we go. So uh, two wings of a great eagle so that she might, here's the benefit, the playoff. She might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. We already knew it was prepared. You already mentioned that up here in verse 6, where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and a half. That's three and a half years. Again, literal or figurative. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed. Now, this is like, a, it's like an animal that's just spazzing out because it's got no chance. It's like desperate, and he is desperate. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river. There's, okay, so it's a simile. Like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. That happened in the Old Testament, too. 
something like that. Verse 17. Now here's how it ends. And you're like, yes, finally. Okay, verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman because she got away again because God's protecting his people. All right? And so what does he do? Like a two-year-old temper tantrum, he went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, which tells me there are other believers in the world at this time that um, he's going to go and try to just, he's just going to go ruin them if, in any way he can, not just kill them. That's too easy. Who are those people? How are they described? Look at this and ask yourself the question, does this describe you? Does this describe me? The rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to his testimony about Jesus. It's about Jesus. He is the hero. Okay? Let's just be really clear here. Say, what's the big deal about Jesus? Because it's all about Jesus, and it's not about you and me. Okay? There's a God. You're not him. Are you ready? Are you ready for his return? Let's pray. Lord God, this is crazy. And yet, I see. I see that you're at work in this world and that you are drawing people to yourself, sometimes through judgment and sometimes through mercy, and that you protect your people from satanic opposition, and that you love it when your people in the midst of great opposition continue to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God being near until that kingdom arrives in full. And you're keeping your salvation promises the whole way. God, you're so faithful. So, Lord, for those that feel defeated today, I pray they would read this book and recognize the victory we have in Christ Jesus that would carry us through those times that feel like defeat because it feels like it sometimes. Lord, may we, have, may we not live by feelings but by faith. And that's so hard, but God, it's a gift from God. Give us more faith, but give us the courage to exercise the faith you've already given us, God. Help us to not be cowards. Courageous faith. And may you get all the glory at the end of the day. In Christ's name, amen.